Welcome to Bite Size Battles. The sea mist gathered as beads of dew on the sharp edges of axes and spearheads. It was thick and cool, bringing a chill to early summer's morning. But the wielders of axe and spear were hard men from a hard land, the chill welcomed as a lover's kiss compared to the ravenous bite of the winters of home. Half the men stood ready with their dew-dripped weapons, poised to jump from the bows of their longboats onto the shingle shore. That shore was fast approaching, they could tell, not from sight, for the mist was too thick, but from the growing sound of waves breaking gently upon it. But despite their speed, their longboat barely made a sound, gliding serenely through the water, powered by the other half of the men, silently synchronised in their oar strokes, each one cutting the surface as if using the legendary sword Skofnung itself. The sea was calm, and the longboat seemed to slip sleekly through it, its dragon-headed prow carving the way. Odin and Njord were smiling on them. To either side of the dragon slid two other longboats, equally graceful in the water and sporting prows tipped with the heads of a wolf and a raven. The heads could be removed when sailing in friendly lands with friendly spirits, but the Vikings had not come here with friendship in mind. The three heads were there to frighten the spirits of this new land, and they promised death. Death that was now imminent, as the mist suddenly cleared in front of them and the shore beckoned from just metres away. Now the rowers pulled with all their might, picking up speed for the final run-in, surging forwards and driving the keels deep into shingle where they stuck. Axe and spearmen poured over the sides of the longboats, quickly followed by the grinning rowers, who had ditched oars for weapons of their own. Within moments the beach was filled with a hundred huge bearded men, bristling with steel and violence. With barely a pause, they loped up the shingle to firmer ground, their target clear in sight as the rising sun burned away the morning mist. They had come to the island of Lindisfarne, and Viking eyes shone as they beheld its monastery. Shields were hefted, swords drawn, spears gripped, and axes swung in gleeful anticipation. And the Vikings roared Odin's name as the monastery bells suddenly rippled out a panicked alarm. The Viking Age had begun. I'm Andrew McKenzie. This is Bite Size Battles, and welcome to the first episode of Viking England. So it begins. Lindisfarne to the Great Heathen Army. Support Bite Size Battles now through the link in our website or Instagram page. Help me to bring history to life.
Lindisfarne was not the first Viking raid on England. There was at least one other that we know of, and probably a lot more. But Lindisfarne was the moment early medieval Europe suddenly sat bolt upright, alarmed at the menace coming from across the sea. The Vikings fell upon Lindisfarne in 793 AD, and they tore it apart. It was a remote monastic community of Christian monks and hermits, and the Vikings must have heard that there was enormous wealth there, guarded by nothing more than a hope and a prayer. How they must have grinned in elated disbelief. But they didn't just steal the silver crucifixes and gold plates, the chests of coin and precious stones. They embarked on an orgy of destruction, burning the monastery and most of the buildings, and slaughtering any monks who hadn't scurried to safety. Such was the physical and psychological devastation of one of Europe's holiest sites that one of our best sources, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, probably compiled by a few different men, was sure that it must be part of a much wider portent of disaster. They spoke of immense whirlwinds, flashes of lightning and fiery dragons flying in the sky. A great famine followed, and then, of course, the Vikings themselves came cruising in their longboats. They went on, Heathen men came and miserably destroyed God's church on Lindisfarne with plunder and slaughter. Alcuin of York, then a scholar working at the court of Charlemagne in Francia, wrote that pagans have desecrated God's sanctuary, shed the blood of saints around the altar, laid waste the house of our hope, and trampled the bodies of saints like dung in the streets. Their arrival heralded 300 years of bitter warfare in England, a struggle between Viking and Anglo-Saxon, which helped to create a new nation and change its culture and language forever. There's been a concerted attempt to redefine the Vikings in recent years, from the popular image of bloodthirsty savages bent on rape and pillage, to one that stresses that they were farmers and traders, and that they came to new lands in waves of immigration, not simply by invasion. And that is true. But I think the revision goes too far. They did farm and trade and immigrate, but they so often did all those things at the point of a sword. The land they farmed in England had been won in war. The wives and families of the warriors immigrated into lands captured and subjugated through fire and iron. They didn't just ask nicely. And in any case, all that farming and immigrating was to come long, long after Lindisfarne, because for the first six or seven decades after that first iconic assault, all England knew of the Vikings was that the sudden arrival of dragon-headed longboats off the coast meant that they were here to rape your women, enslave your children, burn your house, pillage your church, and give you a mortal lesson in how spears work. The Vikings were, first and foremost in my mind, warriors, intent first on plunder through raiding 
and then later on invasion and settlement. They prized courage and skill in battle and deemed it the highest honour to die in combat with sword in hand so that Odin himself would select them to join him in the great halls of Valhalla where they would feast and whore and fight until the world ended in the tumult of Ragnarok. After all, there's a reason they nearly conquered all of England and for a brief period actually ruled as kings. There's a reason they were able to carve the territory of the Northmen out of France, later known of course as Normandy. And there's a reason they were employed by the Byzantine emperors as the famous Varangian Guard. So what we know of Lindisfarne fits the profile perfectly. A sudden arrival by sea and a fast and violent assault, leaving buildings razed, people slaughtered and treasure looted. At the time, Lindisfarne was part of the Kingdom of Northumbria, one of four major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in what is now England. In the year 793, though, the notion of a united England hadn't even been conceived yet. Instead, it was a series of kingdoms, like Northumbria, born and evolved from the chaos of the post-Roman era 500 years earlier. The other three of the largest kingdoms were East Anglia in the east, Mercia in roughly the middle of England, including London, and in the south, Wessex. They were all Anglo-Saxon, named after the original bands of Germanic Angles and Saxons who had slowly pushed the Romano-Britons deep into Wales and what is now Cornwall in the southwest. For more than 60 years after Lindisfarne, the Vikings terrorised these kingdoms, using their almost mythical sailing abilities to strike coastal communities everywhere at will. Even inland towns and cities could not escape the Vikings' attentions, with the longboats pleasure cruising up the many English rivers which crisscross the landscape. People going about their lives, tilling fields, weaving clothes, heading to market, could suddenly find themselves captured and sold into slavery all over Europe and the Muslim world. Churches and monasteries were looted for their wealth, Often whole villages or towns would be ransacked and burned. Entire generations must have come and gone, not knowing a time when Viking raiders weren't a reality of life. Christian Anglo-Saxon writers then called them heathens, Danes, Norsemen, Northmen, sea rovers, sea wolves and dragon lords. It was the sleek, slimline longboats which allowed them to strike without warning and slip away again before any serious armed response could be mustered. Warriors as the Vikings were, in the first half of the 800s, they were much more focused on getting rich from easy plunder than in fighting pitched battles. Scrapping with the locals could see them lose half their number and so only be able to man half their ships and therefore only be able to take home half the loot. No, get in, get out, get rich. But in the 860s, 
they suddenly changed gears. Vikings represented a culture and various tribes from Norway, Denmark and Sweden, and they had been raiding pretty much independently of each other. But now, suddenly, a huge number of those previously disparate groups of Vikings joined forces for the greatest invasion of England since the Anglo-Saxons had come swarming across the sea from Germania 500 years earlier. The sea wolves, in other words, were coming to stay. There are probably several motivations for why the Vikings chose to move from raiding to actually invade the English kingdoms. Chief among them was land. There's only so much fun and wealth to be had from raiding. You could take your tales of adventure back to Scandinavia, along with enough booty to buy a couple of slaves and some cattle. But life was hard back home. The soil was thin, the climate not particularly conducive to growing food. If you wanted a stable life for your tribe and your family, you had to be able to grow enough food. And they had seen firsthand the rich, lush and fertile fields of England. And not just food either, but wealth too. Instead of stealing the riches the English kingdoms generated, why not just own the kingdoms yourself and have a steady stream of wealth? Much better. But there was another reason too, one that becomes clear when you know who led the invasion. Three brothers, all huge men of wrought muscle, thick beards, plaited hair and fierce eyes known by the names of Halfdan, Uba, and Ivor the Boneless. All three were the sons of the famous Ragnar Lothbrok. The Norse sagas tell us that Ragnar had been raiding Northumbria when he was captured by its king, Ayla. Ayla, fed up of incessant Viking raids on his kingdom and enraged by Ragnar's arrogance, had the Viking killed by throwing him into a pit of snakes. Even worse, without a sword in his hand, Ragnar could not expect to feast with Odin in Valhalla. The manner of their father's death incensed Halfdan, Uba and Ivar, who put together a previously unheard-of coalition of Vikings to invade England, make it theirs and punish Ayla while they were at it. From Norway, Sweden and Denmark, Viking jarls and warriors flocked to join the invasion, eager for a slice of the English pie about to fall onto their plates. Vikings, of course, had also been fighting in Francia, Frisia, Germania and Ireland, and large bands of these joined the invasion force too so that the brothers could count perhaps 3,000 warriors in their ranks. A terrifying number for an Anglo-Saxon king to face. In 865 then, those 3,000 Vikings fell first on East Anglia, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom in the east of England. It was a place of marsh and bogs, and not particularly wealthy but its weakness meant it was the perfect place to begin. 
As the horde of Norsemen waded ashore, East Anglia's king, Edmund, couldn't stop his knees from knocking together. He begged the Viking brothers for peace, offering silver and horses in return. The Vikings agreed, wintered in East Anglia, and then come spring, used the horses to ride north into Northumbria at speed, ravaging the countryside and making a beeline for the kingdom's capital at York. It all seemed a little too easy, and it was, because Ayla was fighting a civil war with a rival claimant to his crown, Osbert. Neither would dare face the Vikings because they simply weren't strong enough alone, and even if one of them did take them on and somehow won, they would have been so weakened by battle they might as well have handed the other man the Northumbrian crown on a nice silver tray. But in the inaction of their intransigence, the Vikings took York. They attacked on All Saints' Day, November 1st, 866, probably deliberately knowing that the city's leaders would all be in the cathedral celebrating Mass. We don't know much about the attack itself, but it went off without a hitch. The Vikings must have scaled the walls or sent men through the gates under cover, only to emerge a day later and open them for the army. Whatever the case, the Viking capture of York was a massive blow to Northumbria, and if Ayla and Osbert even wanted a crown to fight over, they would have to rid themselves of the Dragon Lords first. So, the Northumbrian rivals put their differences aside, joined forces, and marched on York. Uber, Ivar, and Halfdan were delighted. This was their chance to crush the army of Northumbria. Do that, and the entire kingdom would be theirs, with the bonus of Ayla's lifeless body thrown in to boot. The sources differ in what exactly happened next. Some say that the Vikings had left York during the winter and now came in the spring to retake the city, which had been strengthened in the meantime with the garrison of Ayla and Osbert's men. Others say that the Vikings remained in York and were besieged by the Northumbrians. But either way, it's clear that the fight was a bloodbath. The Northumbrians probably outnumbered even what they had begun to call the Great Heathen Army, but most of the Anglo-Saxons would have consisted of the Third, local men raised by their lord into a militia and armed with whatever they had to hand, usually sickles, hammers or hatchets. Some might have had spears. While every Viking of the Great Heathen Army was a dangerous warrior, trained from birth to wield sword and axe. Perhaps two of every three men of the Northumbrian army was a farmer or labourer called to fight with little more than a sharp stick and loose bowels. The details are sketchy, but when the fight began, it seemed the greater Northumbrian numbers might actually win the day, pushing the Vikings back by sheer weight and threatening to spill over the ends of their lines to envelop the Northmen's flanks. But, seeing this, the Vikings faked a retreat, and when chased, 
suddenly rounded on their pursuers. They quickly broke through the now shocked and disordered Northumbrian front lines, which would have been formed of the Anglo-Saxon warriors. Once that happened, and the Norse began to carve into the third behind with ferocious swings of great Dane axes, it was over. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that both Ayla and Osbert were killed in the rout, alongside most of their men. But the Viking sagas tell a different story. They say that Ayla was captured, which is an unlikely given that I can imagine Ragnar's sons giving orders that he was not to be killed but brought before them. He was spared not for mercy though, but for revenge. The sagas say that in vengeance for the killing of their father, the Viking brothers had Ayla blood-eagled. He was lain prone on the ground, facing down and tied there. Then an axe was taken to his back, cutting away his ribs from where they joined the spine so they would splay outwards. His lungs were then pulled through the opening to form what looked like grotesque wings. It didn't take long for Ayla to die. And the Vikings followed this grisly execution of a king with yet another one. After leaving a puppet on the Northumbrian throne, they went south into Mercia, spreading panic and death far and wide. They captured Nottingham and beat off a Mercian Wessex army sent to retake it. Mercia was forced to buy peace instead, and the Vikings left, weighed down with gold, silver, slaves and cattle. Now they went back to their original stamping grounds when they had first arrived in England, East Anglia. King Edmund there had paid them off with horses, you'll remember, but he must have been chastised by the other kings of Anglo-Saxon England, or perhaps just his conscience, because when the Vikings arrived, it turns out his courage had grown. He attacked them. Edmund, though, had probably been better off grovelling, because the East Anglians proved no match for the battle-hardened warriors from across the sea. The Vikings absolutely annihilated Edmund's forces, captured the king, and tied him to a tree. They tried to force him to renounce his faith in Christ, which he refused to do. So they picked up bows and arrows, knocking them as Edmund called the Lord's Prayer aloud. But his cries turned to shrieks as the laughing Vikings used him as target practice, several arrows striking home, piercing flesh and bone. A second Anglo-Saxon king was dead, and a second kingdom too. East Anglia belonged to the East Angles no more. It was Norse land now. This was the winter of 869, and if Mercia and Wessex were hoping for some respite, they were sorely disappointed. Anglo-Saxon mouths must have gone dry when they heard the following summer that yet another great army of Vikings had arrived in England, keen to share in the spoils of what looked like easy prey. 
Two English kingdoms were down, two to go. And these two were the richest yet. The new Viking army, led by a warrior Jarl named Bagseg, reinforced the great heathen army. Initially, they lulled the Anglo-Saxons into a false sense of security by doing not a lot of anything. But they were waiting for winter. Usually, armies travelled and fought in the summer. More food available, better weather, easier to move. But knowing this, many of history's canny commanders have used winter to surprise their enemies, and now Bagseg and Halfdan did exactly that. Knowing that Wessex would be celebrating Christmas, in late December the Vikings launched a full-scale assault, moving with speed to Reading. What followed was, in short, a disaster for Wessex. Its king, Ethelred, and his brother, Alfred, led the defence. But despite an early success at the Battle of Englefield on New Year's Eve 870, they suffered a shocking defeat at the Battle of Reading four days later. The men of Wessex had been ploughing through the Viking defences, brushing all aside. But just when victory looked assured, Vikings suddenly burst from a gate in Reading's walls flanking and overwhelming the Anglo-Saxons. The armies met again at the Battle of Ashdown, in which Alfred led his men uphill right into the teeth of a Viking shield wall. But in pinning them there, he allowed Ethelred to come sweeping in unseen from the flank, scattering the Norse. But ever the pendulum swings, and Ethelred then suffered two huge defeats in as many months by March. And then, in April, he died. Alfred was now catapulted to the Wessex throne, Ethelred's sons being underage. The Wessex Council of Lords, the Witten, agreed. But the change in management could not change the course of the war. And when Wessex suffered yet two more defeats at the hands of the rampant Northmen, Alfred had no choice but to pay them to leave. While the Vikings had won a string of stunning victories, Wessex was much larger, richer and more organised than Northumbria or East Anglia. They hadn't destroyed its army or killed its king, and they had taken casualties, chief among them Bagsek himself at Ashdown. It was time to regroup. So they took the money, left Reading and settled in Mercy in London, where archaeological digs are still turning up huge buried Viking hordes, at least some of which are likely to be Alfred's Danegeld. Alfred had bought himself and Wessex a little breathing room, but the Vikings weren't finished. Northumbria and East Anglia were already Norse, and within three years, Mercia had also fallen to their fury, the story of which we'll tell in the next episode. With most of England now in their hands, the Vikings eyed Wessex as a tiger does its wounded prey. Nearly every year following Mercia's fall, Viking armies rampaged through Wessex, 
and things became so dire that by 878, King Alfred of Wessex was hiding in a swamp. The last Anglo-Saxon kingdom reduced to little more than eel-infested, reed-ridden marshland. Join us next time for the crushing of Alfred's Wessex. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then. Bite-sized battles relies on the kind support of the people who enjoy what I do. You can too through the link in our website at bitesizebattles.com or through our Instagram at bitesizebattles. Help me to bring history to life.